1: Hi there, and welcome to New Books in South Asian Studies. I'm your host, Ian Cook. Today we're talking about Impossible Citizens, Dubai's Indian Diaspora by Niha Vora. The book is published by Duke University Press, and Niha is a professor of anthropology at Lafayette College. This really is a wonderfully rich and engaging account of middle-class Indians who live and work supposedly only temporarily in Dubai. Now, through analysis of these perpetual outsiders, perpetual outsiders who are also crucial to the Emirati economy, the book really sheds new light on our understanding of citizenship, belonging, and even Dubai itself. This book really is in the finest tradition of anthropology. It's both simultaneously minutely detailed in its descriptions and yet it's global in its analytical reach. And in doing so, this opens up new ways of thinking about migrants in the contemporary world. I had the pleasure of speaking with Nia just a few moments before. So it gives me great pleasure to welcome Nia to the show. Thanks a lot for coming on and thanks a lot for your wonderful book. Thank you. So before we talk about the book itself, Azunin, could you first please tell us a little bit about your academic background?
0: Yes, absolutely. So I'm uh, trained as a cultural anthropologist. Uh, I got my PhD at University of California, Irvine in 2008. Prior to that, I had an had gotten a master's degree in women's and gender studies at San Francisco State University so there is a thread of um, feminist theory and feminist thought that runs through a lot of my work Uh, after I graduated from um, my PhD program I my first job out of grad school was at Texas A&M University in Texas so that was actually really great because it was it allowed me to start the current project that I'm working on, which we can talk about later, which is on American branch campuses. Um, And now I am at a liberal arts school in Pennsylvania called Lafayette, and I just finished my third year here.
1: Okay. Wonderful. So now let's turn to talking about the book itself. So the book is about middle-class Indians who live work, supposedly temporarily, in Dubai. And you call this group Impossible Citizens. So my first question has a couple of parts. The first is, what makes them citizens, if they're temporarily there, and what makes them impossible?
0: Okay, um, that's a great question. I Well, before we even get into that, I wanted to kind of clarify that I do frame in the book the populations that I talk about as primarily middle class. However, it's a little bit more of a geographical framing where I'm looking at particular neighborhoods in what what is now considered kind of like the old downtown Dubai near the Creek where the maritime trade was happening, where the earliest settlements were. And so within those spaces, you find middle-class, uh, folks. You also find working class folks, like people who, for example, are doing bed shares or many people to a room um, who are working in low wage work. And you also find a lot of uh, elite um, merchants or a whole range of merchants. So um, while the book is focused on middle class Indians more than any other group, it, it's more about this geographic bounding of of the spaces that contain that feel like they are the most Indian parts of town, if that makes sense. Um, so, in terms of these two questions about why are they, why do I call them citizens, and why what makes them impossible? Um, the impossibility part is due to the way that citizenship structures are. Um, In place in Gulf countries. Of course, these are not rigid. These are porous. um, But to give you just a a framework, um, citizenship, unlike in, say, the United States, where if you're born in the United States, you are automatically a citizen. uh, In the Gulf, it's passed down through the father's line. So your father has to be a citizen for you to be a citizen. This means that every foreign resident or migrant who make up about 85% of the population of the United Arab Emirates uh, is it not only is not a citizen but also has very little access to citizenship. Now, there are some exceptions to that, which is, for example, if you marry a citizen, then you can naturalize. Certain groups have been naturalized in the past. Uh, If you have um, what in the Gulf we call WASTA, which is connections, uh, you can get naturalized. So, So there are exceptions to these rules, but for the most part, it is naturalization and even permanent residency for migrations is, is practically impossible. Migrants are tied at every level, whether I go as an academic to teach a, um, a course or somebody goes as a um, business executive or a bus- even a business partner to an Emirati citizen or, or what we know as the quintessential, let's say, construction worker in the Gulf. Everybody is tied to Temporary renewable work visas. So this also precludes not only citizenship, but also permanent residency. Like. As if in the United States, you would have a green card or something like that. Those things are not really available. The only way that are available is um, with these new projects that are in place where wealthy people can buy what they call freehold property, which comes with a, um, with a visa for the time that you, ha- you have that property. So that's the impossibility part. The citizens part is me really kind of unpacking what do we mean by citizenship itself? Technically, we tend to think of citizenship as the legal category preferred upon you by the state that gives you certain rights and privileges um, that basically officially says that you belong. However, within anthropology, there's been a lot of work that looks at what I would call like multiple forms and scales of citizenship, ways that belonging and also political subjectivity happen despite or even because of the lack of uh, access to legal belonging. So, for example, people talk about urban citizenship and that, that plays a big role in my in my book to think about who does the city belong to, who lays claims to the spaces of the city, how do people develop their identities and subjectivities and even their politicizations in relation to the particular spaces and they reside in and the experiences of being in those spaces. And people have also talked about, and you've read in my book about consumer citizenship, that the the idea that the purchasing of items that are connected to place produce a sense of affective belonging to, to that place. People have also talked about diasporic citizenship, that you are, um, a member of a diasporic community, and then that diasporic community also lays certain kinds of claims to the state for rights and recognition. So, I'm trying to unpack this very rigid definition of citizenship to really talk about, like, citizens—like, who is in this city? It's a very urban ethnography, right? And and who is really? Um, whose languages, whose cultures, whose social practices are the ones that are pretty much driving the everyday experiences, not just of South Asians, but also of all of the other residents as well.
1: Wonderful. That's a, that's a great framing uh, to the book. Thanks for that. Um, it's interesting, you mentioned at one point in your book that when you decided to, to do research in Dubai, a lot of your Indian friends and relatives told you that Dubai had no soul. Oh, uh, this is interesting, then. And I suppose a good way to ask you about the types of cosmopolitanisms produced in the city that you talk about is to take the leave from your friends and family and ask directly, does Dubai have a soul?
0: Um, I think that well, first of all, it wasn't really my Indian friends and relatives okay. that told me that Dubai didn't have a soul. It was actually more often my fellow academics. And and surprisingly to me, people who are Middle East studies experts often would have, have uh, these uh, embedded stereotypes of the Gulf countries as somehow, you know… Uh, Fake, as spectacle, as not authentic, not having culture. Uh, and, and so those were the, the, the narratives that were circulating within um, the scholarly crowd when I was doing this uh, research. The question of whether a city has a soul is, to me, just a, it's almost a ridiculous question. If, if people are inhabiting a place, that place is important and the everyday practices of placemaking are important. And in that way, of course, every city has its own kind of character to it that if you want to call it a soul, you can call it a soul. But this idea that somehow because so many rapid changes are occurring because citizens number in such small proportion to non-citizens and that these are very new countries. Uh, The UAE was, became independent in 1971. I, I, I get the sense from a lot of scholars that they they feel like, oh, well, this is all empty and it's fake. And, and, and as an anthropologist, I, I really take issue with that because I, I don't find the everyday experiences of people living in a city like Dubai or Doha to be any less real and any less important to our understandings of how processes work in the contemporary world than if we were to go to Egypt or Yemen, for example. I think it also reveals a um, a little bit of a problem in the disciplines of Middle East studies and anthropology themselves, where they tend to essentialize the people and the cultures that supposedly belong to a particular place. And in the process, they end up marginalizing the very populations that I am um, looking at which are non-citizens mm-hmm,
1: mm-hmm. thank you thank you for that now um, there's a uh, I hope I get this bit right but <laughs> there's, there's another nice part in the book when you said that as a young girl you thought as Dubai as being an Indian city and uh, so I'd like to yeah I suppose to ask yourself the question that you ask yourself in chapter 2 which is well at least in the title of chapter 2 it, is, is Dubai an Indian city
0: um, you know I've been thinking about this in the way that I frame this book uh since it came out and it i would say Dubai is more of a south asian city than a than an indian one per se i i as you know in the literature people tend to tack back and forth a little too easily between south asian and indian and i was trying to be very careful in, in when i wrote the book in talking about it, in being clear that I'm, I'm discussing Indian populations and Indian populations do make up the majority of the people in the neighborhoods that, that I'm um, talking about. However when you get into say a taxi cab or you speak to um, any service worker uh, anywhere around the city uh, or if you look, if, if you're in the construction industry, you're seeing a lot of, diff- or, or even um, if you employ a domestic worker, you're seeing a lot of Different South Asians um, that come in different waves at different times. So, yes, it is a um, Indian. These in, the neighborhoods that I talk about are definitely predominantly Indian. They feel very Indian. They the languages are Indian. The Hinduism is uh, is present in um, the iconography in in a lot of the um, shops and things like that. However, I would say that you. Also, find many Pakistanis, Nepalis, Sri Lankans, um, Bangladeshis, all over uh, not only Dubai but other Gulf cities as well. Although Dubai is, I would say, the most South Asian city out of out of the Gulf cities, uh, and it makes it uh, it makes it very interesting because it it is a South Asianness that. Um, It creates a sense of connectivity between groups of people that normally would not consider themselves to be aligned. So, for example, if I get into a taxi cab with a Pakistani driver, we are both Desi or South Asian. uh, And that is a shared kind of framework, even though there are definite class differences between me as the as the customer and him as the driver but the the kind of familiarity and the languages that we can speak with each other are are very very similar whereas a Pakistani in Pakistan and Indian in India might not really think of themselves as um part of the same
1: group mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. okay thank you thank you for that um now, one what, what of the, the things that was in my head when I, was, when I was reading the book, I was thinking about my own, my own field work, which is in Mangalore in, in coastal South India. And there's a lot of people who there lived and worked in Dubai. And uh, especially among the, the richer ones, the, sort of the middle class who you describe in your book, um, I remember a few different things I was told, especially from one lady who told me that, that uh, Indians were no longer favored in Dubai. She had a real nostalgia from when she first went there. Thirty years or so ago. And so I was wondering, could you please talk us through this feeling for nostalgia amongst some Indians in Dubai you describe in Chapter 3, and also the relations between the different groups of Indians in the city?
0: Oh yes, absolutely. So this was an ongoing, um, excuse me, this was an ongoing narrative among um, primarily wealthier and business community people that Dubai used to be an easier place to do work, uh, to do business, i.e. make-profit, um, it's not so much anymore. We used to have favored relationships with Emiratis. Now they're hiring more GORAs or white people. Um, they're shifting away from these small kinds of business enterprises into large-scale multinational corporations. These people were also seeing what they thought was the center of the city shift uh, very rapidly down uh down the main thoroughfare of Sheikh Zayed Road to all of those buildings that we now associate with Dubai, so that the nostalgia was definitely part of the narrative. Whether the nostalgia whether whether the nostalgia equates to Indians being less favored in that kind of elite business community, I'm not really that sure because what I found with my um, informants. in in those communities is that, yes, they were facing some challenges, but then they were also finding many, many loopholes and many, many ways to kind of get around things so that stuff pretty much continued as business as usual. Um, Where I did see a lot of uh, change, though, in terms of people's everyday lives, but they weren't really as nostalgic because I don't think they felt Dubai was as... Much of a home to them as the the more established merchant communities was among your everyday middle class workers. So, for example, let's say you are a uh, tech worker who works for um, Emirates Airlines or another large company like that. Uh, I, I did notice that a lot of people were feeling displaced. They were feeling that their salaries were not increasing while the cost of living was definitely rising quite a bit. They felt like they were no longer able to live in the neighborhoods that they felt most comfortable in. A lot of them were moving out to the outskirts of town towards Sharjah because that is where they could afford to live. Um, They saw a lot of discrimination in in work where even if they had the same uh, degree and the same level of skill set, a Westerner would always be getting paid higher than them. Often, a Westerner. Uh, I even had people telling me about how Westerners would be their managers when they were less qualified to do the the job. And with that came a lot of stereotypes about Indians that, in fact, were not really perpetuated by Emiratis because ha- how many Emiratis? are really within these everyday office spaces They were really perpetuated by other nationalities and primarily in the eyes of my interlocutors by white British and North American, um, managers who would say things like, well, Indians just can't think outside of the box. So that's why they don't get to be managers. And I, I mean, I I understand the kind of, the way I ended up understanding the logic of those kinds of, uh, um, stereotypes was that how do you as a westerner um who's getting paid so much more money than the indian sitting next to you with a whole bunch of benefits also built into your package how do you justify that that um that inequality well you justify it by uh by for some reason, figuring out a narrative that makes you better and more qualified to make all of them more money than the Indian sitting next to you. And that's, I mean, that's the only way I could kind of come up with these, why these kinds of stereotypes were constantly circulating and why my interlocutors were experiencing them more and more. I don't know if that answers your question.
1: No, it does. It's it's good. Thank you. And And it brings us nicely on, I suppose, to think about the sort of differences in ethnicity, which were which which you also talk about a bit in the book. I mean, there was definitely a consciousness of race among amongst many of your uh, informants, but uh, at the same time, is there was a sort of consumption based citizenship which which was also going on. So I was wondering how do these two things interact with each other?
0: Okay, let me uh, I have to think about how they interact with each other. Okay. Um, but let me talk about them separately, and I'll probably okay. get to the to how they interact with each other. So. Um, the consciousness of race. I mean, it kind of goes back to what I was saying before about like the uh, an NRI or, or a ABCD or whatever you would call me um, interacting with a with a Pakistani cab driver, right? There's there's definitely a um, a way that the kinds of impromptu interviews that I would have with with cab drivers, with security guards, with service workers, they would be much more open about how much they were making, how the kinds of discrimination they were facing um, and things like that, than I believe they would have been with say uh, a, a white anthropologist, for example, because I think that is an indication of the racial consciousness. And, and a lot of, of people that I talked to identified, like their identity shifted with, migration process and with the process of living and working within these, um, within Dubai. So in a lot of ways, the living part, a lot of, a lot of groups did not really, even though they, like if you go into a downtown neighborhood that is very South Asian Um, And there's Indian restaurants, there's uh, sari shops, there's gold shops, there's electronic shops, uh, there's um, all of these services. So like getting your uh, documents translated into Arabic, um, remittance, uh, places where you can remit, banks, uh, travel agencies to help you get back to South Asia. All of those things are in those spaces. However, for the most part, people... They recognize those spaces as home and they recognize those spaces as familiar, but they don't really have, when you ask them who's in their social circle, you're not going to find the variety of South Asians that you see on the street interacting with each other. So most people that I spoke to, because of the sheer volume of South Asians in, in the Gulf, um, you know, there were a, a lot of these like... Informal social clubs or gatherings, so Bengalis would hang out with Bengalis, Punjabis would hang out with Punjabis. I mean, even down to you know what neighborhood in Bombay are you from, and that is going to be like uh, a thing that creates community and your friendships and, and 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 things like that. So so that was definitely present as a form of division between members of the community, but not not in a hostile kind of way. Um, but then the racial consciousness was also there, which is that let's say you're in the workplace and the person sitting next to you, like maybe you're North Indian and the person sitting next to you is South Indian and you can have a conversation about, you know, that. The discriminatory practices that you're facing, you. I've I've heard many South Asian men talk about the discriminatory practices of, for example, not being allowed into nightclubs and bars and other kind of, other spaces where they are deemed somehow un, unsafe or unsavory people to be in those establishments. So, so the, it, there's a lot of tacking back and forth between insider and outsider identity, but definitely the process of migrating and living in Dubai creates identifications that are not the same as if you had stayed in the home country. And this is something that, again, goes back to my question, my, my assertion of citizenship, right? That that uh, the the standard narrative is these are temporary workers. They have no desire to be here except for making money and they're just going to come here and then they're going to leave. But they are deeply changed by the processes of being there and the way that they think about their identities and the way that they think about who counts as, um, in their, you know, sphere of similarity and difference. Um, in terms of the consumer citizenship question that you asked, uh, I don't really know how to connect these two. So, like, let me think about that for a second. So, can you repeat that second half of that question?
1: No, maybe it was, maybe it was badly phrased. I just I just I was just thinking that you 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 spoke sometimes in the book about the some some of these middle class um, interlocutors were. I have to say they they had a certain belonging through their through their consumption, right?
0: Oh yes, absolutely. Okay, yeah. so um, there's so many different ways in which. Consumption-based belonging was taking place, taking place at so many different levels. So I can give you a few examples. I mean, my and and these are also ways that actually this does connect to what I I knew I would figure out the connection as I talk. <laughs> uh, but the this this kind of sphere of similarity and sphere of difference, sort of and tacking back and forth between who counts as in your in your identity and not in your identity, also. um goes back to the question of being a migrant or being in diaspora, which is that there was definitely this sense that you are in the Gulf, um, you are supposedly making more money, you owe things to family back home, you're permitting back home. So even if people were claiming Indianness, that Indianness was not the same Indianness that they had left behind. And oftentimes they would relate not feeling as comfortable when they went back in India or expectations of family in India for them to uh, bring things for them and gifts and all these kinds of things. So certain kinds of commodities from Dubai became Surprising, I'm sure you know this from your from your own fieldwork. So there's there's a French grocery store chain called Carrefour, and um, if you go to Kerala and and if it's a you know low um, income or uh, a person who's migrated from Kerala to 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 Dubai, uh, even the plastic shopping bags from Carrefour end up. having a certain kind of like social capital and a certain and a certain kind of status and desirability uh that that marks you as a gulfie, right that somebody who who went there and and uh you know has a certain kind of cosmopolitanism because of the experience of going there and that's through the connection to these commodities um Consumer citizenship also worked within Dubai in particular kinds of ways. So, and and it's not necessarily even consumer in terms of pulling out your wallet and purchasing things. It's also consumer in terms of being the tourist in your own city. So consuming the spectacles of Dubai that you, you feel kind of left out of, but also are proud of. So there was a lot of... Um, you know, showing me around, showing new people around, saying this. Look, look at this thing that is mine, right? This, like, look at the Burj Khalifa. Look at this thing that is in my city, and and that is also something that I consider a form of consumer citizenship. It's it's, it's this kind of uh, like being the flaneur, but being the flaneur that actually is is uh, claiming is taking claim to a city that they supposedly don't belong to.
1: Oh, wonderful! Thank you. Yeah. You answered my question. It's, it's also funny you bring up Carrefour because this was one of my stupid moments in my own field work when uh, someone kept telling me, oh, he worked for Carrefour and he was so proud of it. And I had never heard of it before in my life. So I'd written it down and I assumed it was some, arabic thing that i didn't know <laughs> yes. <laughs>
0: yes. i i had the same experience i thought it was some kind of local chain and then i find out it's french
1: <laughs> yes <laughs> I was like, uh-huh, okay yeah okay so um what what are the other interesting things i like to, is in your book is that i uh, it's interesting when you talk about belonging is the, is the children of these migrants and what happens to the children of these migrants when they grow up so um first i have a, a factual question which i didn't know before i I read your book, and I'm sure lots of people would also be interested to know, is that what are the rules governing the children of migrants once they themselves become adults in Dubai? And what are the attitudes of these young Indians, uh, or the attitudes and also their aspirations, in regards to their wanting to be in Dubai or, or back in India?
0: Okay, um, so the rules actually start even before you can bring children. So uh, a lot of people have asked, you know, like, where do you cut off middle class? And I I did it actually pretty art like, clearly based on the 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 way that the rules are written, which is that if you want to sponsor a child or a spouse in the Gulf, you need to be making a certain amount of money and not living within company housing. So you need to not only be making a certain amount of money, but also be able to afford to live outside of company housing. Um, when I was there, that was 4,500 uh, dirhams, which roughly is about... I don't know, fifteen hundred dollars or something like that. Um uh maybe a little less. And now since then it's gone up to ten thousand dirhams, which shows you that there is some kind of uh anxiety about the the amount of these second and the second generation kids that are that are growing up there. So I kind of mark that as the middle class uh line, um, on some level. Um, not that I was asking everybody about the kind of money that we're making, that they were making, but to be a family in the Gulf, um, automatically puts you into a particular class category because you need to be making a certain amount of money. Um, in terms of how that works, usually it is the father who, so like the, so the citizenship, pro, um, Practices that I talked about before where citizenship is supposed to go from father to children, uh, those kind of apply in the way that migrants are regulated too. so the father can sponsor a wife and children um, however, for 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 women, um, when I was there, and this might have changed because things change very drastically. Uh, for women, you could only sponsor your child or your husband uh, if you were in one of these industries that were that were considered very um, difficult to to fill. So, like if you were a doctor, for example, uh, and I think that that has changed. I do know that in Doha, I had met a couple of people last fall where the 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 um, woman was employed as an academic and was sponsoring her her um, husband, but. Uh, I'm not 100% sure on that. So um, to get to your actual question, your children are under your sponsorship until the age for, well, this is also very gendered for for boys. um, They can be sponsored until the age of 18. um, Or if they are going to college, they can be sponsored until the time that they graduate from college. With girls, they can be sponsored until they get married. So that could be until they 're thirty if they if if it 's until they 're thirty and so a lot of a lot of these uh, a lot of young women that I had met um, had chosen even if they were working in dubai had chosen to stay on their parents um, sponsorship because it would make it much easier for them to then switch jobs because it 's hard to switch jobs in Dubai as well, which is another reason why um non-citizens become precarious because you need a no-objection letter from your current employer in order to switch jobs to your next employer. Um, if you quit, you can get blacklisted, and then you can't come back to the country. And, of course, being jobless means automatic deportation. So um, so these were all things that, like, people were strategically maneuvering around. And so for young women who had graduated from college and were entering into the workforce in Dubai – A lot of them chose to stay on their uh, father's sponsorship. Um, The other part of your question is about their attitudes and aspirations. I, I really didn't see a lot of difference between the second generation of South Asians in Dubai that I spoke to and my experiences growing up. Um, except for there's just so many more of them. They're just so much more comfortable in their own skin. They, they get to be in these self segregated spaces. They do many of these kids, especially when I got into, um, researching the American universities that were opening in the Gulf. Many of these kids had never actually like interacted with an Emirati in their lives or even, um, with non South Asian nationalities because their schools were even nationally, uh, broken down. So, that was a big difference from what you see in in other sites of South Asian diaspora. There was a definite sense that, like, I am Indian. So if you ask them if they're what they are, they say I'm in, I'm Indian. They would never say, um, like I would, when people ask me, "What where are you from?" or "What are you?" I would say I'm American, and it's kind of like an insult to me because it it just <clears throat> implies that we this country is one that is natural where, where naturalized citizens are always going to be like are perpetually foreign. Right. Um, but they would not have those same kinds of concerns for them. They were Indian, but India did not feel like home. Uh, India and Pakistan, this this chapter is the one where I actually had a lot more Pakistani students that I was speaking to. Um, India and Pakistan did not feel like home. They felt out of place. They felt that it wasn't cosmopolitan enough. They felt like they were missing a lot of the luxuries like air conditioning and cleanliness and all of that kind of stuff um and they were i think Um, on a wide range in terms of aspirations, Some were very clear that they did not want to get married and settle down in Dubai. They found Dubai too materialistic. It was too precarious. They wouldn't want to raise their children in a, in a place where they didn't have security. Uh, Some wanted to go to the West. Some were quite open actually to the idea of perhaps um, settling down in, in so-called home country. Um, But a lot of this was very ambivalent as well. I don't think people had really, um, I think when you're faced with insecurity for your whole life uh, and it becomes normal, there's really not this kind of like overwhelming um, the, the, the it didn't seem like it was all on this, like that anxiety was like right on the surface. You had to kind of dig deep to, to find those anxieties and ambivalences. They were there, but they were quite a normalized part of their lives.
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Thank you um, I suppose it's the it's something which uh, anyone who does like um, deep field work in, in one locality faces and then they come back and they write but uh, after you finish your field work, two very big events happened the 2008 economic downturn and also the Arab Spring and you, you touch upon this a little bit in the end of your book so I was wondering could you please briefly reflect on these events and how this related to your main arguments that you put forward in your book
0: um, Yeah uh, the so I, I don't think I was in Dubai right in two thousand and eight. I think there was a gap between like two thousand and seven and two thousand. Then the next time I went was I think two thousand and nine. So when, uh, there was definitely a market market shift between the between those two visits, um, the roads were pretty empty. The hotels were um, so much. I mean, I could afford a hotel. For like a hundred a hundred and twenty dollars that used to be like four hundred five hundred dollars um uh the cab drivers were telling me that they were really you know missing out on business uh that things had gotten really tight uh however um i, I the sense I got was that the city had become much more uh normalized I don't know if that's the right way to to put it, but like people were just living their lives and doing this this kind of like flash and growth and like, uh, people making like hundreds of thousand dollars a year for jobs that they're utterly unqualified to do. Those kinds of folks, I think actually were the first ones to leave. Like, so those, those expats leaving their cars at the airport, um, kind of, um, Kind of stories that we heard. I I, my feeling is that these are those Europeans that they were bringing in during the boom time that um, really weren't, you know, value add besides uh, for the symbolicness of having Western or white uh, faces to to your uh, com- to your cor- uh, company and I mean I I have no factual evidence for this but this is the sense that I got and when I came back to Dubai in the subsequent visits after the the the, um, the economic downturn it just felt like a much more settled city like people were doing their thing. There's lots of little subcultures. There's, there's many different people that are there. Um, yes, of course, a lot of people lost their jobs. Um, a lot of South Asians lost their jobs, but then at the same time, um, and I do note this somewhere in one of my publications, the amount of people that were getting new visas were, um, were, Either the same or more than the ones that were coming back. So, so this kind of circular migration thing didn't really uh, change. It might have been tapping it into different groups. Uh, I do notice that in Doha, for example, uh, which where I started my research post economic downturn, the construction sector is primarily Nepali and not. Um, Indian, like it, it, South Indian, like it, it is in, it was, or is in Dubai. Um, I don't know if that has anything to do with it. I, you do see in these countries, um, pretty quick shifts from one nationality to another, uh, in terms of what sec, what sectors they populate. And I think that might have to do with, uh, middlemen and connections, but also with where you can find, um, lower paid labor as well. Um, in terms of the Arab spring, that is not something that I really, uh, that anybody that I knew had any connection to whatsoever. Uh, I talk about it in the conclusion of my book as a way to kind of think about, you know, what does it mean to be political and, and the way that the the Gulf states ended up being represented in, in much of the coverage of what we call the Arab spring was that they were protected, that, that the citizens were, were, you know, bought off or docile or, or, um, or not politicized. And, and this again reaffirms the idea of Gulf exceptionalism and this idea that these are authoritarian and repressive states and, and all of that kind of stuff. Um, and there's two major problems I see going on with that. First of all, many citizens are dissatisfied, and citizenship is not uniform, it's not homogenous, and they're not all wealthy, and they don't all feel like they're included. And citizenship privileges also vary for a whole number of factors that I don't even know if we have time to go into, into this in this, uh, in this podcast. So citizens are disgruntled, and there have been lots of back
1: hello hello
0: yeah are you still yeah. there
1: yeah we got cut off
0: okay can you tell me where we were cut yeah, off you said, so.
1: you said citizens are disgruntled
0: yeah so citizens are are definitely disgruntled and we've seen you know open protests in places like Bahrain and Oman um, we've also heard about arrests in in the UAE, in particular, that in just the very recent UAE list of like eighty groups that count as terrorist groups shows that the country's fear of any kind of um, uh, politicization by citizens, um, and a lot of these things also don't make the news because that in in some places the news is pretty tightly controlled. However, with social media, that has become um, much harder to uh, to keep under wraps. Uh, so, so that's one thing, that citizens are not homogenous, they're not docile, and many of them are upset. Um, the other thing is, how is it possible in any other part of the world besides the Gulf, for us to genuinely just ignore these vast majorities of populations as somehow completely outside of the purview of politics. It makes no sense to me. Um, Especially because migration is one of the top migration and the, the impact of expats and the idea of losing tradition and culture are, are central platforms upon which citizens um, formulate their politics. But, Worker protests are also, migrant worker protests are also quite common in the Gulf. They just don't get talked about. So what I was trying to do in that conclusion was talk about these things as not distinct from each other, that all people who reside in a place um, are forming their political subjectivities in and through each other and their experiences and and vis-a-vis the state as well. And to think about one group as political activists, such as uh, citizens, and another group as just economically disgruntled or exploited, such as migrants, really forecloses a lot of questions that we could be asking about solidarities, about about the role of migration in both citizen and non-citizen lives. And it and the heterogeneity between, within these two categories that we tend to take as the primary dividing line between uh, experiences of residence in
1: in the UAE and in Dubai. <laughs> Wonderful, thank you, thank you so much. Uh, I realize that you know we always have a short amount of time on these podcasts, and I shot through your book very quickly. So I don't think you, is there anything that you think I've missed that you'd like to highlight for those who've not yet had the chance to read your book?
0: Um, what I was really aiming to do with this book is it is an intervention into the literature on the gulf absolutely but my my scholarly trajectory has always been about de exceptionalizing the region that it, that gets exceptionalized in very um uh you know simplistic ways that aren't really thought through that oftentimes just glean themselves directly off of state discourses. Um, and, and really obscure then the, the very complicated dynamics of everyday life for the range of people that are living in, in these so-called cities without souls. Right. Um, and so yes, if you're a Gulf studies person, read the book, but the book tells us a lot about transnational networks of community and identity and migration. It tells us a lot about how global capitalism produces spaces for particular forms of labor, particular forms of inclusion and exclusion. It tells us a lot about how citizenship in a so-called illiberal place reflects back upon what we consider to be liberal spaces. And I bring up this one um, phrase a lot in the book, which I call multiple logics of governance, which is that we think the world is divided into liberal spaces and illiberal spaces or democratic spaces and non-democratic spaces. But when you in fact look at what's going on on ground in a place like Dubai, you see liberal, non-liberal and neoliberal processes at work all at the same time, uh, in the same way, then, if we took that as truth, and that's up to the reader um, to gauge, but if we if we took that as, as a baseline that these kinds of processes happen there, then I think it, it behooves us to look at how we create mythologies about what happens in liberal spaces that really erase the non-liberal aspects of 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 liberal spaces. So, I mean, just, if you just look in the last, uh, you know, few months at what's been going on in the United States with, uh, with, um, targeted killing of black, uh, men and women by our police, um, to me, that looks a lot like authoritarianism and not a lot like representative politics. So I I think it, it is really something that, that hopefully will get people to think about um, the mythologies that we really associate with these with these labels, and how they are mythologies. And what if we just thought of all of these places as profoundly normal and deeply interconnected, and then got to the down to the process of figuring out what daily life is like in them?
1: Wonderful, and and I really think this this comes through in the book. I mean, I was I was probably one of those who was guilty of having this, you know, uh, having never been to Dubai and just, you know never had a scholarly interest in it, just had this sort of fantastical picture, you know, created through the media or through discourses in my head. So I really enjoyed reading this book because it really, it really brought out the, yeah, the normalcy in the everyday life of people there. So I, anyway, I really enjoyed reading it. And for all those reasons that you listed, I think it'll be interesting for, for many different people. But now you mentioned a little bit before your scholarly trajectory. So let's, uh, let's continue on that. And I'm wondering like, what are you working on now? What are your current and future projects?
0: Um, so currently I am working on my second book project, which actually comes out of the work that I was doing in that, um, last ethnographic chapter with the second generation, um, college students in Dubai, um, I had been, I'd been. i noticed at the time that I was there that there was this mad dash to the Gulf by Western institutions and even by Indian institutions and Australian ones and uh, from all sorts of places um, to open up branch campuses or some kind of higher education or even uh, primary and secondary education partnerships. Um, and what this was doing, at least for the the people that I spoke to in Dubai was allowing them to stay in the country for their higher education, whereas before they would have had to leave. So, so in that way, they were becoming even more entrenched. Right. Um, and they were interacting some of them for the first time in their lives with so many different nationalities, including Emiratis and other colleagues, And that, um, that, that, brought to the forefront the deep stratifications in the society much more to them than they had experienced while they were growing up so i i was really interested in well what are what's happening with these i mean admittedly highly elite institutions that not not a lot of people can access although there are now uh, there's now a proliferation of also much more vocational and and less expensive uh, versions as well Um, so what's uh, so that again was a question of citizenship what ed- higher education is deeply formative of of citizenship and and has been central to ideas of the development of national uh, um, character and identity and all of that kind of stuff um, so then what happens in these spaces of higher education which are built by the state often as projects to move away to help to help nationals get jobs um, to replace the reliance on foreign labor. But in fact, the populations that are attending them are mostly uh, foreign residents, given the demographics of, of the countries, right? So um, my new project is looking at uh, this this giant campus in Qatar called Education City, which has six American branch campuses. It also has um, a whole bunch of other like research centers and it has uh, UCL as a master's program and it has local institutions. But I'm really looking at these American branch campuses and asking about the question of what does a so-called non-liberal modernity, which, which state rhetorics do promote, um, why is it underpinned by these liberal education projects and what's actually happening in these spaces? Are they liberal? Are they not liberal? What do we even mean by those things? Going back to what I was saying before, which I I actually find them to be really not useful terms to to talk about anything. Um, And what kinds of especially uh, forms of identity and citizenship are taking place within the classrooms and hallways and social spaces of, of these campuses as, uh, as cutteries and non-Qataris interact with each other and, and you know these are formative years for for people in in figuring out their identity. These are also uh, gender integrated schools. English language only uh, build themselves as egalitarian as secular. however, there's also privileges built in for kacharis that non kacharis cannot access so there's a whole mess of complicated things going on in these spaces and i'm I'm focusing in the book on really kind of unpacking what kind of nation is being conceived in in these spaces and who is going to inherit that that nation because i think the state likes to pretend that it is citizens when in fact on the ground you can see and in many different ways you can see that this these are transnational countries and that's not going to end it's just a question of which expats and which nationals get privileged in the process of um, belonging, and which ones get marginalized?
1: Well, wow, that sounds that sounds absolutely fascinating. Uh, we we look forward to that uh, a year or so down the line, I suppose.
0: Inshallah, we'll see. <laughs>
1: <laughs> okay, wonderful. Well, there's nothing more for me to do apart from to thank you again for coming on the podcast, and thanks a lot for your wonderful book. I really enjoyed reading it, and I really enjoyed talking with you today.
0: Thank you so much again.
1: Thanks so much for downloading the new books in South Asian Studies Podcast. I've been your host, Ian Cook. Today we've been talking about Impossible Citizens Dubai's Indian Diaspora by Niha Bora. I really love this book. I think it was a wonderful discussion right now with Neha and I hope you're gonna have the chance to check out the book yourself. Thanks again for listening and hope to do again next time. Ta-da!